Island Shakespeare Festival's Shakespeare Playground presents Tales from the Vomitorium 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser At Island Shakespeare Festival, our mission is to provide accessible classical theater realized for a contemporary audience. Tales from the Vomitorium is presented with special permission from Scott Kaiser and is made possible in part by support from our sponsors, the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, and Whidbey Telecom. Learn more at islandshakespearefest.org. Today, Renia S. Brown reads The Dream Job by Scott Kaiser. Following the story, Renia will share her response. Then, Scott and Olina will discuss Scott's inspiration for the story, as well as his experience with the play from which the story is derived. We hope you enjoy. The Dream Job by Scott Kaiser Read by Rania S. Brown Please, Julian, pleaded Callie. I know it sounds irrational, but finally I catch a break, Julian shouted. A fucking dream job and you pull this shit? Julian's booming voice filled the small bedroom of their wretched little studio apartment in Queens. Callie and Julian had been living together for three years, squeaking by on cash from catering and waiting tables while Julian tried to get his acting career going. Think of what we can do with the money, Callie. Get out of this rat hole, buy furniture, travel, have a kid. I know, it's just that I have a terrible feeling about this. Julian had just been offered a one-year contract with the acting company performing Shakespeare in cities and towns all over the country. What are you afraid of? demanded Julian. What exactly do you think is going to happen? I'm afraid that what? I'm afraid you'll be killed on the road. Why? Why would you think that, Cal? I... I had a dream. A dream? Yes. What? Well, what was the dream? Julian demanded. Callie sat on their bed, looking out of the filthy window into the brick air shaft, and told Julian her dream. I was an empress, like in ancient Rome, sitting in a huge arena, like the Colosseum, and it was filled with thousands of spectators, and they came to watch a gladiator do battle with a ferocious lion. The gladiator entered the arena, and when he turned to pay me his respects, I saw that he had no face. Then the lion entered the arena. It was huge, like ten times the size of the gladiator, and he tore the gladiator limb from limb and devoured him piece by piece. Callie broke down in tears. Slowly, Julian melted. He sat down on the bed, put his arm around Callie, wiped the salt drops from her face, and kissed her on the cheek. So, I'm the gladiator. Is that it? Callie nodded. He inhaled deeply and sighed heavily. All right, Cal. All right. Julian said softly, I'll call Denise, and I'll tell her I can't do it. On the other end of the phone, Denise, Julian's agent, would have none of it. This is a 
foolish decision, Julian. <laughs> very foolish. We worked very hard to get you this gig. And- I know, Denise, and I truly appreciate how... You told me this is what you wanted most. Yes, but... Just tell me why. Why can't you do the tour? Now, I know this will sound lame. Yes. But my girlfriend, Callie, is convinced that... What? She thinks I'll wind up dead if I go out on the road. Why? Why would she think such a thing? She had a dream. (laughs) A dream? Said Denise. That's crazy! It's just insane! Yes, well, I I know it sounds a little... Tell me, what did she dream? Julian repeated Callie's dream. No, no, no! Protested Denise. Please, put Callie on the phone. Callie took the phone from Julian. Hello, Callie? This is Denise. Look, dear, you've got the dream all wrong. Listen, Julian is the lion, not the gladiator. The faceless gladiator is the role which Julian will vanquish to the delight of thousands of people all over the country, but especially to the delight of the empress, which is you, Empress Callie. Two months later, after weeks of grueling rehearsals in the city, Julian was stowing his bag underneath the bus to begin the national tour. I love you, said Callie, embracing him fervently, her eyes leaking to tears. Take care of yourself. I love you too, said Julian as he boarded the bus. And don't worry, nothing will happen to me. I promise. Call me tonight. Callie shouted at the bus window, waving her cell phone at Julian. I will, Julian mouthed back through the glass. The diesel engine roared and the vehicle pulled away in a cloud of fumes and street dust. The next day, to take her mind off the gaping void in her life created by Julian's absence, Callie took herself to see a new exhibition of Roman antiquities at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. There, in the crowded gallery... Callie met Leonard, a tall, blonde Swiss financer, a risk manager for Credit Suisse. Callie and Leonard walked together from object to object, discussing the pieces, a vase, a bust, a headless statue, a sarcophagus. Callie had majored in art history in college and spoke eloquently about the pieces. Leonard had traveled the world, had been to all the great museums, but had never encountered a woman like Callie. At first, Callie did not agree to meet with Leonard, but her loneliness eventually tore her down, and she began seeing him, first for coffee, then for lunch, then for dinner, then after much soul-searching, love-making. With every passing day, Callie's love for Julian began to fade, drop by drop, limb by limb, organ by organ, until it was completely consumed by her love for Leonard. Eight months later, Callie moved in with her new lover in his luxury condominium on Fifth Avenue with a view of Central Park, a view fit for an empress. At the front of the building, a ferocious lion, exquisitely carved in solid granite, guards the front door.
That was The Dream Job, read by Rania S. Brown, recording from her home in Washington, D.C. You might remember Rania from her memorable performances in ISF's 2018 season, as Marianne in Sense and Sensibility and Cassio in Othello. Here are some thoughts she had about The Dream Job. You know what's interesting about this story? The first time I read it, I I was like doing text work for another show. Um, so I was like in the middle of that. And, you, you know, when I'm, when I'm like in the zone, especially with text work, like it's, it's hard to, to pull my attention, my attention away. But I just, so I just like quickly breezed over the story since I knew it was a few pages. And on the, upon the first time reading it, I thought, Oh, it's, this is Antony and Cleopatra. Because the first thing that popped in my head was, uh, a Cleopatra, uh, uh, talking about the the dream that she has with uh, uh about uh, Antony. Oh, such another sleep that I might see but such another man. Right? And I knew like I'm going to have to reread that again just to make sure, but you know, the first thing that popped into my head when I thought about a dream was Antony and Cleopatra. And then I thought about Cymbeline for like 2 seconds, you know, that weird dream with the the eagle or whatever that bird is. Uh, but I knew it wasn't that. <laughs> but then I, I went back and, uh, when my mind was clear and I reread and was like, Oh my gosh. I mean, the first sentence is please, Julian pleaded Callie. I know it sounds irrational, but you know, um, Julian and Callie. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. I can't believe I missed this. This is based off of Julius Caesar. Of course it is. So then, uh, you know, I had like a nice little chuckle at myself. And then I, re- <laughs> and then I read the story and I was like, Of course. Right. 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 So, um, I, I, I dig this story, especially because, well, you know, Calpurnia, uh, Caesar's wife. Uh, tells her husband, uh, she dreamt of, um, uh, a lioness. Uh, I know I know this. A lioness had the welt. I'm gonna look it up. But I think I know it. Okay, yeah, I, okay, yeah, see, I was right. Um, uh, a lioness had wealth in the streets, blah, blah, blah. Blood was drizzled all over the Capitol, um, spouting from your statue. And, and she begs him not to leave the house, right? And we know this story. You know, don't go to the Capitol. And Julius is like, Oh, but I'm going to seem like a coward if I don't. It'll be fine. And he goes and we knows what, we know what happens, right? He, he is stabbed to death. <laughs> um, and then I started to think like, hold on, let me go back to Julius Caesar. And, um, and this is, and I'd like, this is what I love about this work, like about Shakespeare is I, 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 like on the weekend, the thing that I love to do, like I will kick my feet up and grab a uh, Riverside and be like, what play am I going to read tonight? Um, and you know, sometimes I'll get all the way through. Sometimes I'll fall asleep, like, uh, at act two or, or something. But, um, but I do love to just go back to the plays that I don't read often. Uh, and Julius Caesar is one of those. So I went back and was like, of course, I knew that there was something about, uh, something that I was missing with Julian's agent. Uh, like, oh, let me talk to, let me talk to Callie and, and see what her dream was about. And, um, you know, uh, Brutus tells Caesar, no, 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 the blood that she's talking about in the dream, it, it'll, that, that blood will revive Rome. Um, and I just thought like, oh, this is, this is so great. 
you know, like like that other people will will decipher, try to decipher your dreams for you, as we see here in the dream job and in Julius Caesar. Now, the story, the dream job, I what I love about this is it it then becomes Callie's story uh, as opposed to Julian's. Right. She's 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 talking about I think you're I had this dream. I think you're going to be killed if you if you leave me. And Julian is he's a bit arrogant like Julius. Uh, right. Julius is like he he, he think, almost thinks he's inevitable, that he cannot be harmed. And Julian is sort of giving off the, the same vibe, not so much when he, he understands like why she's concerned. But I mean, the first couple of lines are, please, Julian, pleaded Callie. I know it sounds irrational. He cuts her off and says, finally, I catch a break, a fucking dream job. And you pull this shit. Right. Like, I mean. Yeah, you know, it seems kind of kind of like like an asshole in the in the beginning, um, but he does listen to her, and and he's like, oh, I, you know, I, I understand, but but I won't get hurt. You don't have to be uh, concerned. But with Callie being so concerned for him, you know, being driven to tears, obviously she loves him. Um, well, they love each other, but she she's doing her best to look out for him. Uh, and then, you know, the agent gets on the phone and she's the one who deciphers the dream for Callie, right? But I assume, uh, you know, the first time reading the story, I assumed like, uh-oh, he's going to go off and he's actually going to die. Um, because again, I, at this point, I'm still thinking that it's uh, uh, Antony and Cleopatra. Uh, but I love how this shifts into like, yes, Callie is the empress. She does. She like her dream is about her happiness. Uh, and she, she couldn't see that for herself because she was so clouded by, you know, making sure that uh, Julian is good, that he's safe. And if like, I, I just want to, I want to go back, uh, here and, and read this. She says, I was an empress, like in ancient Rome, sitting in a huge arena. And uh, they came to watch the gladiator. The spectators came to watch the gladiator. Uh, womp, womp, womp. And then, so the gladiator entered the arena. I saw that he had no face. Then the, the lion entered the arena. And it was huge. Ten times the size of the gladiator. And he tore the gladiator limb from limb and devoured him piece by piece. And then I love how it circles back around to, you know, Callie essentially is the empress, but her love for Julian began to fade drop by drop, limb by limb, organ by organ, until it was completely consumed by her love for Leonard, right? And Leonard is the lion. And the nod to the lion at the end, at the front of the building, a ferocious lion exquisitely carved in gold or in solid granite uh, guards the front door. Um, so I was so happy uh, for Callie. And I mean, there's a couple things here that, that really stick out to me of like, first of all, like having someone else dictate your dreams. Like how many times have we 
been led astray from the thing that we love the most or, or, or something that we might be interested in or passionate about? What have we been deterred from by listening to, to other people? Also, like if I was Callie on the phone with Denise, uh, with uh, Julian's agent, I'd be like, girl, this is my man and my dream. I didn't ask you. Um, anyway, but it's also to her benefit, right? It's also to, to Denise's benefit. She's going to get paid regardless. I mean, she's an agent, but it's, it's also, of course, Julian's benefit. Uh, he's going to be the one like out working, traveling, like he, and the work that he does, he loves. Um, he's obviously getting paid. So the only person who doesn't seem to have a, a, an incentive is Callie until she meets Leonard, of course. And, you know, when you're, when you're blinded by someone else telling you what's best for you, uh, it, it may take some time, but, uh, eventually, like what is meant for you, it is for you. Uh, and that's why Callie gets to meet Leonard and, and he can give her everything she needs. She ends up in a nice apartment. He got money. Not that she's a gold digger, <laughs> but like he does have money. Um, you know, and, and I, and I mentioned the money because, you know, we mentioned that, that, you know, he, he works for, uh, credit. Swiss and and um, earlier, you know, we were talking about how they are scraping by for, and to stay in their uh, queen's apartment. Um, and Julian even calls it a rat hole. So it's not that she's a gold digger, but he has everything that she needs and that she is, quote, consumed by his love like that. I mean, who doesn't want to be consumed by love? Um and like also now I'm thinking about what was that conversation like between Julian and Callie? Like what wh- was she like, just so you know, I'm moving out. Don't worry when you don't see me, when you get home, I'm good. Or maybe she just doesn't tell him and she just leaves because he's going to be gone for a year. Uh, but she moved in with Leonard eight months later. So... I don't know. Julian's just going to come home to an empty house. Uh, and, and also, <laughs> uh, like, you know, listen, I know, like I, I just said, um, you know, you can't let anyone, how many times have we been led astray by someone telling us what's best f- for us? But also we do have to listen to people. Like when, like she is, Callie is pouring out her heart. And, and she's telling Julian, like, what, what's scaring her, what's frightening her. Uh, and she's concerned for him. I mean, who knows? They might have still been together if he had stayed home. But, uh, of course, she still would have been in that same situation where she's scraping by. And it seems like she's with the man who, he's not a terrible person. But, you know, Callie could do better. And she did. So, yay for Callie. <laughs> um uh, I, I'm so happy that I got to uh, read this. And, you know, it just, it makes me super excited to, um, obviously I love doing Shakespeare and I love performing uh, Shakespeare's work. Uh, but I also really love how we can adapt his work into something, uh, contemporary, uh, but still, uh, very much the, the story that, uh, Shakespeare is trying to, uh, to tell us that the thing, the main thing that he's trying to uh, throw out into, into 
our faces so that we understand how how much more we are connected uh, to each other. Um, and and uh, Scott is is uh, great at that. I remember I, I did a reading of of his play Falstaff in Love when I was at Island Shakespeare Festival, and I I really enjoyed the show, but it it had really uh hit me of like how we can continue to tell Shakespeare's stories but in our own words or build off of them or you know use the same themes and the same motifs and uh maybe some of the same imagery uh but still but still make it our own i just think that's that's magical you know, this, this guy's work has been around for four, well, about 500 years. And, uh, we are still playing with it. We're still flipping it and turning it upside down and, you know, adding this other layer of, of adapting his work, which, which we have been doing for, for a, a while as well. But, um, there is, there is magic in that. And then you start to think like, well, you know, a hundred years from now, are people going to be reading, you know, Scott Kaiser's work and going, wow, this is a, you know, this is a classical play. And I bet, you know, and, and, and when they're in school, they're probably going to be comparing the dream job to Julius Caesar in the same way that when we're in school and we read Hamlet and then we read the Spanish tragedy by a uh, kid, Thomas Kidd. I think that's right. I think I- I'm not even going to Google it. I know I'm right. But <laughs> uh, that, you know, I-, I love that. That's what I look I look forward to. And I look forward to reading more of of uh, Scott's plays. And, um, you know, hopefully I can get back to Island Shakespeare Festival because uh, I had a magical time there. So thank you all for having me. And thank you for listening to uh, my shenanigans. And um, this has been The Dream Job by Scott Kaiser. The Goose Community Grocer. Becoming part of what you love about South Whitby. Featuring the best beer selection and largest bulk food selection on Whidbey Island. Profits from the Goose are reinvested back into our local community. Find out more at goosegrocer.com. Thank you so much for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. Today, Scott is here to chat with us about The Dream Job, which you just heard read by Renia Brown. Hi, Scott. Welcome back. Hi, Alina. The dream job. I'm really excited to dive into this conversation. Um, Of course, this is uh, inspired by um, Calpurnia's dream in Julius Caesar. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your inspiration behind that and, and weaving that into this modern story. Well, I um, I was trying to think of how a dream might affect an, an actor <laughs> um, rather than Julius Caesar, uh, how to carry that idea over. And uh, that's how I came up with this idea of, uh, of an actor who um, has, a, um, uh, has a dream, or rather um, Callie who has a dream. Callie is the uh, stand-in for, for Calpurnia. Um, and, uh, how she takes the dream to mean that, uh, that Julian 
is going to run into trouble on this tour. Uh, and then I just uh, I kind of developed it from there um, that it was misinterpreted. Um, and I should say that part of my inspiration also came from having played uh, Decius Brutus um, when I was an actor in training. And uh, Decius, you may remember, is the one that walks in um, like the agent in this story and says, oh, you've, you've misinterpreted that dream. Uh, Decius comes in and says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. Uh, that Julius Caesar will, is going to be fine. Uh, he's not going to, not going to die. <laughs> so um, I had that in mind when I wrote the story as well, that, uh, that, uh, you know, interpretation is, is a matter of subjectivity. So, uh, yeah, th those are the influences in the, in the story. And then I, then I developed it from there. And of course, in Julius Caesar, it's she didn't misinterpret the dream and he does die, uh, like, I don't know, 10 minutes later. Calpurnia gets it right. That's right. And Decius is the one that strokes uh, Caesar's ego and, uh, and turns it upside down. Right, right. In the most recent production at the festival directed by uh, Shanna Cooper, I think, um, she made a really interesting parallel. I, I thought I was obsessed with that production. I really thought it was great. I think you and I have um, some differing perspectives on <laughs> some of that. But one thing that I especially loved was uh, presenting the, the soothsayer the soothsayer right as mm -hmm. as a woman as well um so then we had calpurnia with her dream and the soothsayer with with her um warning and also portia and these three these three women who present you know a a, a truth to the men in the play um and what that what impact that has on on all of them. And I just, that was really, really interesting to me. And I think, um, there's so much, there's so much Calpurnia is offering in the play here that it's sad that it's not heated. I, I agree with you. I actually thought that they having all women in the, um, in the most recent festival, uh, production was was worked very well although it is actually not uncommon to have the soothsayer played by a woman uh, even before that production and the reason for that of course is when you're doing julius caesar and you're looking for female roles the soothsayer is a obvious place to put a female uh, oh for sure yeah. yeah yeah we had a we had a woman play the soothsayer too but we didn't specify the connection of the three and they in that production they had there was some staging that brought the three of them together on stage for a moment to really highlight that that was what was happening. And that the men are not um, are not open to listening to advice from 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 the women in this play. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that's a very strong, uh, a strong statement to make. Absolutely. This is. A play, Julius Caesar, of course, is a play we see a lot and, and hear a lot. And it's a a favorite in the canon. Um, I wonder if you can talk, it's also, you know, obviously very political and has become very political in recent years and recent productions. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you've seen interpretations change over, over the course of your career in different productions you've worked on and um, sort of what, what stands out to you about that? 
Well, I think you're right. It changes based on the political weather. I mean, the most famous production that was recently uh, received a lot of attention was, I believe it was the New York Shakespeare Festival did uh, Julius Caesar outdoors uh, pre-pandemic, of course, with, uh, uh, and Julius Caesar was dressed as Donald Trump, big red tie, you know, hanging out over his fly, um, you know, in the oversized coat. And, you know, um, they were criticized very heavily by conservative media for staging what looked like an assassination of the president. Um, so, um, but uh, it, I think that's fair game. It, it is it is an assassination, um, and uh, and the consequences of assassination. I think Shakespeare is very clear that assassination, of course, is a political act, and as we've seen in this country, assassination um, does change history. It changed it with Kennedy. It changed it with Lincoln. Um, it uh, it changed it with Martin Luther King. It changed it with Bobby Kennedy. Um, and so uh, I think that, you know, the political winds blow uh, wherever our recent historical memory is. And that's how the play is often interpreted, um, you know, when when we come to produce it. Um, I've, I've done it uh, not only as an actor, but I've done it. I did it as a coach as well. Um, I worked on the 2011 production in the. In the Thomas. Yeah, that was Vilma Silva as Julius yeah. Caesar. That was our first yeah. female Caesar, which I thought were beautifully. Oh, um, <laughs> I mean, I uh, if Vilma ever listens to this, Vilma, I think you're amazing. Um, yeah, she, she can. She, I mean, she is. She, she was so, her presence as Caesar's ghost throughout was just like so stunning. Yes, but but it's also, a, I think, a good example of, of what we were just talking of, which is the idea of having a female in power back, you know, 10 years ago and how problematic that would be for all of the men that surrounded her and, and it would actually, why it would contribute the idea of having the, this female um, uh, assassinated. Um, it, it brought a whole new level of, of uh, you know, political um, statement to the play that, that I think Vilma leaned into beautifully. Um, and uh, oh, the other players in that production uh, were uh, Jonathan Hogan as Brutus and uh, Danforth uh, Comins as Antony, and they were also really brilliant in those roles and also small space. I mean, it, it was great to see um, those, those uh, kind of mental gymnastics that Brutus does in trying to convince himself that it's it is ethical and moral to kill um, uh, in order to save the republic, um, to see those up close were were I thought was just revelatory in that small space. Absolutely, and there was such a I mean, in uh, the audience really became part of the storytelling with becoming the crowd and there, the voms were used so much for entrances and exits and like action taking place in the voms too um that it you felt like pulled to whatever side was was currently speaking it was really interesting and also in the lobby display for that production um there were all of these uh like panels hung in the upper lobby of the of the thomas theater um that described different uh political uprisings and assassinations and um it just it it set a it set the audience up for this experience of how how the uprising kind of bubbles up 
And it was really, I, f- I found it to be incredibly effective. That was directed by Amanda Dehnert, and uh, and I, I agree that I think her handling of uh, the kind of audience uh, ensemble interaction was especially well managed. Uh, she really, from the from the very beginning, found a way to bring the audience in right from, as you say, from the lobby. I actually, if I remember correctly, they had banners even on the bricks outside the theater. Uh, oh, you're right. Yeah. That was part of trying to draw in the audience to this idea that, uh, of, of thinking about assassination as a political act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I found it incredibly uh, impactful. You know, just to double back, I was, I was, you know, the other thing that I didn't say about the story that I wrote is that uh, um, I was, as so many of these stories, really interested in the impact of theater work on, on relationships. Um, and this is an example where a tour uh, is becomes an obstacle to to a relationship. Uh, I I know, as I'm sure you do, many many people who uh, took a tour, sometimes two months, sometimes a year or more. Um, some of the most lucrative jobs in New York City are the get on a bus and do uh, you know the Lion King on tour, and you're on the road. Uh, you're pleased to have those roles you're pleased to have that income but you are out and the the uh, the stress that places on a relationship much less a marriage is 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 very very real um and so that that also was in my mind when i i wrote the story um is how that the separation um while you're off doing jobs in the regions or on buses uh is can be just incredibly damaging to a to a relationship that's just sort of getting going. Absolutely. I mean, the anxiety of being apart and and lonely, you know. Um, and always when you're when you're joining joining a cast and um, starting a new production, like there's so much getting to know you time that that has to happen so quickly. And we ask ourselves over and over to really create a family that then is going to have to separate also when that, when the uh, show is over. And it, it's, I mean, I don't know how we do it. I guess we do over and over, but it's really hard. It, it it is. It is one of the things that I wanted to explore in this story and in the book. That I, I think um, I was watching on television. Um, you know that that uh, movie Prom, um, and there have been so many shows on television and movies about theater and theater people. You know, there's the Pitch Perfect series and the and Glee and um, and, and so often um, the glamour of theater and the and the and the community of theater and and um, you know is shown um but you know in in so many ways the the book is about that you know the cost of being a theater person what it costs personally um in terms of relationships and finances and um and uh love connections and uh you know mental health uh, there, there there's real cost in being a theater person and uh, and i i've rarely seen an honest portrayal um uh, in film and television about, um, about that particular aspect of being a theater person. Absolutely. It's glorified so often. And, and there's such a, you know, behind the scenes thing about like, Oh, how fun and flirty everything must always be. But 
It's not. It's so it's so hard. And, you know, we've we have that every summer bringing people here from all over the place and and asking them to be a family for three months. And then always I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast yet or not, but always at the end, (laughs) the last couple of weeks of of the summer are always so hard because everyone's realizing that that's coming to an end and they're going to have to say goodbye and and you know, are excited to go back to their life and their family or their partner or whatever, but also are leaving this family they've been immersed in for, for several months, creating really vulnerable work. Um, and it's, then they go and do it again somewhere else. You know, it really is hugely taxing. And I don't know how, how we sustain that over years and years and years. I mean, I think that's what's so beautiful about companies like OSF and um, some of those larger regional theaters that allow some company members to build lives in in a town where they get to make work and not have to be in a city going from job to job to job, because that's not sustainable for everyone. It, it is hard. I mean, as you say, that every cast that comes together forms its own community. And for the most part, although I, I know that some casts come together and they don't really form, you know, for the most part, uh, a cast comes together and, and uh, it becomes a very trust-based um, and, and supportive, nurturing, loving community. Most casts are like that, that I've been experienced. Um, and uh, it is very hard when you have to break up the family at the end of uh, uh, two months or 10 months or uh it, it, it can be heartbreaking. I think with social media, it is easier to stay in touch with people, but it's not the same as being in the room with that group. Um, I don't know what the long-term effects of, of coming together and being ripped apart over an entire lifetime. <laughs> I don't know if there's been any, any studies about that, but I know it can be, it can be very, um, it can be very traumatic. Um, and as you say, one of the joys of being part of a, a resident company, um, like OSF is that you see the same people um, over and over again, year after year, and you don't have to rebuild that trust. Um, the trust is built upon and you just get stronger and stronger. But as you and I both know, that's not the norm. That That is a true anomaly in this business. Um, and, I mean, it's it's too bad, but uh, it's, it is, uh, it's absolutely not the norm. Um, and uh, as I've been saying, you know, the, the, the impact of of this kind of work on human beings um, can be can be really devastating over time, um, and uh, I've just never seen uh, in depth examinations of of that particular uh, facet of what it is we do. Yeah, absolutely. And remind me, in the story, is Callie is not also in the theater, right? Um, or it's not mentioned. If she is, I don't, you know, I think I leave that up for interpretation. I don't think that Callie is necessarily a theater person. Um, I don't think I actually say what she does. Um, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a hint there that she's not a theater person because she majored in, uh, in our history. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she meets him at the museum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, and, and what a complication that can be too having a having a partner who's not and you know as as much as they may try to support a life in the theater it's it's hard if you're in it and it's hard if you're out of it 
I don't know that many couples, I have to say, that, um, you know, with with one in and a theater person and one not. Um, maybe maybe you do, as I think about it. Well, I tried it for a while. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm racking my brain sitting here. I'm sure they, they're out there. I'm sure they exist, but I, it's much harder when your partner doesn't understand um, what it is you do and what the demands are um, and is willing to give you a pass because you're going to need that pass yourself um, the next job you get. So uh, those are that's very hard, those relationships. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, whether your partner... Because also... If you are in the theater, though, then you then you do know what that's like. And you also know how hard it can be for you to be wanting to immerse in this new family and also feeling tied to someone else. And um, it's it it just is. I think you're absolutely right. It's very hard and it's exciting to tell some of those stories. And and when you're young, of course, um, there there is there's, of course, it's it's. It's even harder, I think, that the level of temptation, um, the loneliness um, that's involved. And of course, as I think we've talked about in a earlier podcast, you know, especially if you're doing uh, physical scenes, uh, intimate scenes or, or, or scenes of vulnerability, really in any facet of your life, uh, the bond you form and you begin to lose track of what's real sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, you do. And and you want to and you need to. Mm-hmm. For the art, yeah. <laughs> oh, the sacrifices—they're real. They're—they are real. And if, if I have any message to the those listeners who are not who are theater fans but have are not theater practitioners, it, it's a good thing to remember. Uh, really, the sacrifices that are involved in living a life in theater. Yeah, definitely. We do love it. We we do it because we love it. But it is—it's not all glamour and actually very little of it is glamour i blame um mickey rooney and judy garland actually they're blame <laughs> well on that note <laughs> <laughs> thank you scott thank you Lita. we'll talk to you soon bye bye thank you for listening to tales from the vomitorium 38 short stories by scott kaiser Sound design and composition by Orion Michael Schwalm. This episode was sponsored in part by the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, Whitby Telecom, and by our listeners. Support us and learn more at islandshakespearefest.org.